Now, Father, we come to this passage of Scripture which focuses on your Spirit's work in the church through your people, by the enabling gifts of the Spirit. And we pray, Father, because we need your help to understand these things. And so I pray, Father, that you would send your Spirit to speak to us, to fill us, and to teach us, to illuminate us relative to your truth, that we would come away knowing and understanding better what the gifts of the Spirit are all about and what they are for and what our responsibility is to you with them. And Father, I pray that as a result, we would be energized and mobilized to be a more pure church, a more harmonious church, a more unified church, so that the world will see what you are doing and have done here and glorify our God. That we as a church may show what God is like by our unity and harmony as individuals who are quite different from one another and yet one in Christ. And so now, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to protect us from error and fill us with your truth and equip us for all things relative to life and godliness, for your great glory and for our own great, great joy. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We come now this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I invite you to open your Bible to that chapter as we continue working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we all know that as we enter this section, chapter 12, 13, and 14, we're entering into the deep end, theologically as it were, and into an area of controversy over the centuries relative to the place of the spiritual gifts in the church. And I realize that there's no way that I'm going to please everyone because not everyone has the same view on these things. My job is simply to expound upon the text as best I can after studying and praying over the Word of God, and that's what I intend to do for the next several weeks. My hope is that we'll all come away understanding what God intends to do through the spiritual gifts because we so desperately need this as a church as a church body here at Calvary, but as a church in the West, in America, and a church around the world, no matter where we are, whether we're in Fort Worth or whether we're in Greece, which is where Corinth was, or whether we're in Korea or China or Tibet or Africa or South America or wherever the church is, that we would understand what the purpose of the gifts are so that no matter what our view of the particular gifts, we would be using the gifts in a way that would glorify God by bringing unity to his church, which is quite the opposite of what was happening in 1 Corinthians. And so the reason, as you remember, that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, this first letter to Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians, is because he had apparently been written to by the church, by the leaders, I suspect, of the church at Corinth who were asking a number of questions. So Paul takes the time to respond to those questions throughout this letter. And we can see that he's responding to questions through the letter because he makes statements to that effect that make it obvious. For example, in chapter 7, verse 1, the first clear place that we see it, he writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote... 
And so he's going to answer some questions. He says again in verse 25 of chapter 7, now concerning virgins, and you know chapter 7 is all about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He's answering questions about these things. And then chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, big issue for them. Chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, 16, 1, now concerning the collection for the saints in terms of giving and receiving finances. And chapter 16, verse 12, but concerning Apollos. And so we see that there were tons of questions that the Corinthians had. There were a vast variety of them that they were laying at Paul's feet, but none would prove so thorny, so controversial over the centuries in the church than the issue of spiritual gifts. In fact, it's important to note that this is one of the primary reasons that Paul wrote the letter, at least he alludes to it, all the way back in chapter 1. And I'd forgotten about this until I was doing the study again this week, but turn with me back to chapter 1, and, and Paul understands from the very beginning that that the spiritual gifts are a big issue in this church. And when they're used rightly, it's a wonderful thing. Problem was, they weren't using them rightly, and so he has to set them straight. But early in the book here, chapter 1, verse 4, follow along with me as I read through verse 7. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so right up front, he kind of hints at the fact that there's something going on with spiritual gifts in this church. And so he starts commending them in the very beginning, but that's where the, the commendation ceases. From here on, it's instruction, correction, sometimes outright rebuke. And that's certainly the context we find here in chapter 12. Paul is trying to correct them. Because much like the church today, the saints of Corinth knew something about spiritual gifts, but their knowledge was incomplete, which rendered the gifts ineffective at best and harmful and destructive to the church at worst. And so by the time we come to chapters 12 through 14, we see that Paul has had to defend his own apostleship. He has had to rebuke the church for its immorality, its pride, its arrogance, its lawsuits against one another, abuses of spiritual liberty, disorder, general disunity. And now, toward the end of the letter, he addresses the issue that perhaps better than any other demonstrates the fact that they had completely missed God's purposes for them as a people, as a church. And that is the issue of spiritual gifts. Now, we need to understand going in that Paul is not writing for us a systematic theology on spiritual gifts. That is not his intent. And what I mean by that is uh, systematic theology is wonderful, but that's not how the scriptures were written. Let me explain that. Systematic theology is when you take a particular uh, doctrine of the scriptures and you ask the question, uh, what does the Bible say about this particular truth? And then you go everywhere. You start with the book of Genesis and you go all the way to Revelation and you try to figure out everything that God has said about this particular issue. And you can do that with spiritual gifts. 
And it's a good thing. You can do that with any topic, and I encourage you to do that. But that is not how Paul addresses this concern, nor is it how he addressed any concern. And so we don't find him saying, spiritual gift principle number one, spiritual gift principle number two, spiritual, spiritual gift principle number three. Um, what he does, however, is, is he's coming to the church understanding there is severe disunity in the body of Christ. And one of the reasons for the disunity is because they totally misunderstand the purpose and the nature of spiritual gifts. And as they are using them inappropriately and as they are understanding them wrongly, it is not helping the unity and harmony of the church. It is disrupting the harmony and unity of the church. And so what he is doing with the, with the whole uh, subject of spiritual gifts is he is addressing the issue of disunity, and in this case, specifically, how the spiritual gifts and the misuse of them is affecting or causing, at least in part, the disunity in the church. And I say that because in the end, when you're done with everything that Paul has said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, you're going to come away saying, well, what about this question? What about that question? What about this question? What about that question? And we're going to look at the text and say, Paul doesn't answer those questions because those are not Paul's point. Paul's point is the church is divided. It's a reproach to Christ. And one of the reasons is because of your use and misuse of spiritual gifts. So he's dealing with a very specific problem in the church. But we can learn some things about spiritual gifts as we follow his thinking. And that's what we want to do in the next several weeks. Now, in chapter 12, verse 1, this is how Paul begins. And what I'm going to do now is I want to read this text all the way through verse 11. And uh, because this is our context that we're kind of building upon or drawing from expositionally. And so... Let's follow along now as I read, beginning with verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant, unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. And there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit." And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, and to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Now, let's begin with the first verse, because there's something significant here. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
Now, ignorance regarding the purpose and function of the spiritual gifts has been a problem in the church since the earliest years. In Corinth, all kinds of abuses were occurring, as I said, so that the very tools that God had designed to bring the church together and make her a powerful instrument in the community of Corinth to, for, the, for the sake of the kingdom of God and for their own well-being was actually being used to tear down the very thing that God had built. And so Paul wrote in an attempt to tear down their false notions and to rebuild a sound doctrine of spiritual gifts. Now, there are a number of truths here that we need to study from the text together over the next few weeks, but there's really only one thing that I want to cover this week. We're going to spend a significant amount of time on these things, but there's one thing that I really want us to focus on today. Namely, I want us to come away understanding the nature of spiritual gifts. What is a spiritual gift? We can't talk about that without talking about some of the side issues as well, but I want you to come away understanding what a spiritual gift is. Now, next week, we're going to consider the purpose of spiritual gifts, although we'll be hinting at that today. Um, and then we want to consider the variety of spiritual gifts. What are the gifts as listed in this text? Paul identifies them here in 1 Corinthians 12. He also identifies them again, a little bit of a different list, which tells us something. In Romans 12, and Peter mentions them a little bit. We'll look at that. And finally, I want to take a little time at the end to study and discuss how you can discover your spiritual gift. And for this morning, however, let's just focus on the first thing. And the first thing is, if you're taking notes, the nature of spiritual gifts. It's only going to be one point that I cover, but four things under this. When you're talking about the nature of spiritual gifts. There are four things that we need to understand primarily from this text. So what do we need to know about spiritual gifts? Four things, four important truths about the nature of the gifts that we need to understand. First of all, we need to understand that spiritual gifts are not the test of spiritual men. Spiritual gifts are not the test of spiritual men. In other words, just because a person has a particular spiritual gift, let's say the gift of preaching, which is the most upfront gift, or maybe in Paul's day, they had the gift of tongues, which was, which was a sign gift, which kind of singled out people as, as being especially gifted. They loved, the church of Corinth loved the gift of tongues. And anyone who could speak in tongues, that was kind of a big deal. And what Paul wants us to understand here, I think, that just because a person has a a spiritual gifting doesn't necessarily mean that he is all that spiritual. It doesn't mean that God smiles upon his life any more than anyone else. It doesn't mean that he is more mature in Christ than anyone else. All it means is that God has singled that person out to have this particular gift for the edification of the body, whether they are spiritually mature or whether for whatever reason they have remained a babe in Christ is not indicated by the gift that he has. So you can have a preacher of God's word who can get the doctrine right, and yet in his private life, he is a mess. He knows nothing of the love of Christ. He knows very little of communion and fellowship with God. He studies the word of God to preach and teach the word of God, but not for his own edification. 
in struggle when someone comes to him with personal problems that need to be addressed by the Scriptures because he doesn't bring the Word of God to bear on his own life, and so he doesn't know how. And just because you're gifted to preach doesn't mean you're all that spiritual. In fact, there are a lot of men in the pulpit this very hour who are unbelievers. And there will be many, Jesus says, on that day who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we work all kinds of miracles? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Well, how could they be doing those things if they're not even believers? Well, that's a different text, and that's a different question. However, what I want you to see is just because a person is gifted in an area doesn't mean that he is spiritually mature. It doesn't mean that he should even be in leadership in the church. In 12.1, it's important to notice that, um, that there, there is a special note on the term spiritual gifts. It caught my attention several years ago when I began studying this passage. Uh, and, uh, and what I want you to see in your version of the Scripture it should, it should indicate the word gifts is in italics. Now look at your Bible. Look at your Bible, and you see the word gifts. How many of you see in your Bible the word gifts, and it is in italics? Raise your hand. Good. And that indicates to me that the rest of you need to get new Bibles. <laughs> if, you have a, if you have a formal equivalent Bible, and there are several versions of formal equivalent, then you've got a good Bible. If you've got something else, um, then, then you need to get a new Bible. But the word gifts is in italics. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible, even if you don't know anything about Greek, when you're reading the English and you come to a word that's in italics, it should tell you something. The translators added this word. It's not in the Greek. It's added. They put it in italics to indicate this is a word that we felt like we needed to add to help it make sense in English. Because whenever you translate, you lose something. Unless you add some things. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, what they do is they put it in italics and they always attach a note to it. And so you'll see that there's a note, especially in the ESV, uh, there's a note there, which I'm going to get to in a minute. But what I want you to see is that in this text, the, the word gift or gifts is not a part of the, the Greek text. All it says is, not spiritual gifts, but spirituals. Spirituals. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. As I studied this text, it, it became apparent that Paul didn't intend to say, I don't think he intended to say spiritual gifts here at all. He will, but not here. The word translated spiritual gifts is the word pneumatica. Pneuma is the word that we typically translate spirit. Uh, it could mean spirit or wind or breath. And to give you an idea, those of you men who like to use power tools, and some of you women, I know some of you women love power tools. <laughs> if there, are, there are such things as pneumatic tools. There are pneumatic clamps. There are pneumatic hammers. If you've ever seen a, a man out on the street working and he's got a jackhammer and it's pounding, it's making all kinds of noise, and you can't study when it's going on because it's so loud. Um, that is a pneumatic hammer. Why do they call it pneumatic instead of hydraulic? Because hydro means water or liquid. And so there are hydraulic tools that use a liquid. There are pneumatic tools which use air. Pneuma means air or breath or 
spirit. In this case, it is spirit. It is pneumatica or manifestation of the spirit. So what he's saying is now concerning spirituals, manifestations of the spirit, and this is a different word than the one used in verse four. Look at verse four. Now there are a variety of gifts. He doesn't use gifts in verse one, but he uses it in verse four, which indicates to us that something else is happening in verse one. The word he uses in verse four is charismata, gift, from which we get the word charismatic. Charismata is a word that we usually associate it with the whole movement, the charismatic movement. I think it'd be more appropriate, however, to associate the movement with pneumatica because the emphasis is on the supernatural events rather than the grace of God. So why does Paul use pneumatica in chapter 12, verse 1? Why doesn't he jump right into dealing specifically with gifts? And I would suggest to you it's because his primary concern, his first concern, is the people that are involved here. He was not addressing the issue of spiritual gifts yet, but the greater issue of spiritual men. It seems clear that one of the reasons the church of Corinth had fractured was because certain leaders were teaching that the test of spiritual maturity was the test of giftedness. The more gifted you are, then obviously the more God's hand is upon you, the more God is pleased with you, the more useful you are, the more qualified you are for leadership. I mean, the gifts tell you all of that, right? Paul's saying, that's wrong. That is wrong. The more spiritual you are is not necessarily reflected in your spiritual gift. A more literal translation of verse 1 would be this. Now concerning spiritual men, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The ESV has a note on this indicating that it could be translated, now concerning spiritual persons. Spiritual persons. And that translation really helps, helps us understand the next couple of verses, which otherwise seem confusing if you're talking about gifts. Because in the next two verses, Paul's not talking about gifts. He's talking about people. Notice with me, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one, no one, notice the pronoun here, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So now he's talking about people. He's talking about some people who say, what? Who say that Jesus is accursed, and another person says, Jesus is Lord. I think this is what he's saying. The real test of a spiritual person is whether or not he lives in submission to Christ's lordship. No person who says Jesus is accursed, no matter what their gifts, no matter what their talents, no matter their ability to work a crowd or anything else, if by a demonstration of their life, they curse Christ, 
They are not spiritual no matter how gifted they may be. And no one is able to truly say from the heart, Jesus is Lord, and have the gold standard of their life to back it up. In other words, you investigate their life, you get to know them, and it becomes evident that this person has a verifiable history of submitting to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. No person can get like that and say Jesus is Lord with their lives and with their words apart from the Holy Spirit. Don't be confused. The spiritual giftedness doesn't necessarily indicate a spiritual person. It only indicates that for whatever reason, in the mystery of God's providence, God has given this person a special, ena- a special enabling that they are not using rightly, perhaps, because of their carnal mind, because of their pride, because of their ego, because they have some other idol that they're pursuing other than the glory of Christ, and they're using their spiritual gift to get it, fame, appreciation, respect, power, you name it. It was all going on in the church of Corinth. The test of a person's spirituality is not the gift they possess, but rather their commitment and submission to the lordship of Jesus. And so don't let anyone tell you that the test of your spirituality is whether or not you can speak in tongues. It's not true. Or whether or not you can preach. That's no test of your spirituality. The real issue is, has the Holy Spirit put a love for the Lordship of Christ in your heart? Is this person, this imaginary person that we're talking about, and maybe it's not an imaginary person, maybe it's a person that, a, that the church body is looking at for a leadership position. Or maybe it's something, somebody that you're thinking, you know, I really appreciate that guy's giftedness. I'd really like for him to disciple me. Paul's saying, be careful, be careful. The question is not, is he gifted? The question is, does he have a verifiable history of submitting to the lordship of, his, of Christ? Does his life say, Jesus is Lord? Or does his life say, Jesus is trash? No matter whether he shows up in church and gives large amounts of money and is a good leader or not. Don't allow yourself to think that because you're not gifted to preach, you're not spiritual. Beloved, I got to tell you, some of the most godly men in the world are carpenters and plumbers and engineers. I told you about my grandfather on my father's side, who may very well be the godliest man I've ever known in my life. He was not a preacher. He came to know the Lord late in life. He worked for a title company for most of his life, tracking down titles on people's homes and the things they possessed. And he was good at it, but he was no preacher. He didn't preach in church. He, from time to time, taught a Sunday school class. But as I recollect, it wasn't well attended. He wasn't particularly gifted to teach. But if there were a poll taken, and this should never be taken, in the local church, as to who who were the most godly men in that church, I guarantee they would have elevated him maybe higher than their preacher. This is a man who lived his life in such a way that calls people to think he's a servant. He's somebody's master. He loves to be the slave of Jesus. 
and is willing to do whatever God wants. That's the indication of a truly spiritual man. So the first thing we need to know about spiritual gifts is we need to be careful that we're not deceived. And there are an awful lot of people out there. And by the way, and Jesus, Jesus dealt with this again and again and again. People were always looking for a sign from Jesus. And Jesus frequently said, look, I'm not going to show you any sign. And then he'd go off and do a miracle, but not in response to the request. He wouldn't play their game. He wouldn't do the miracle game. But you know, there are people today all over the world, most of them come from the United States, but not exclusively, who are um, fleecing God's sheep and taking advantage of the disadvantaged, robbing them, stealing from them, and doing it by the manifestation of so-called miracles and signs and wonders, and they're doing it simply to get other people's money. And the Apostle Paul condemns them, and ultimately Jesus will as well. Just because people appear to be doing amazing signs and wonders does not mean they are spiritual. Look at the rest of their life. Look at everything else that you can see. And so the first thing we need to know about spiritual gifts is is that it is not a test of spiritual men. Second, spiritual gifts are spiritual gifts are a manifestation of God's grace. Now let's go back to the word charismata. I know I've been hammering you with Greek words and that may be a little confusing. I'm trying to make some sense out of this and I think if you'll stick with me, you'll get it. Charismata. Now why is that a significant word? It's a significant word because of its root at the beginning of the word which is charis. Now, if you have any background in Greek at all, even elementary vocabulary lessons in Greek, then you know that the word charis means grace. I love this word charis because it is the root of my wife's name, Chris, comes from charis. Um, It simply means grace. And notice with me, Paul says in verse 4, now there are a variety of charismaton. There are a variety of gifts. But remember, the root of the word is grace. Now why is it translated gifts? Here's why. Because what is grace? Grace is giving. If you are gracious to someone, when God is gracious to us, He is giving us something that we don't deserve. To be gracious is to be giving. And so it's appropriate when you see the word charismata, or in this case charismaton, you're taking grace and you realize this is a noun form. So he's talking about not doing something, but having something. It is a grace. How How do we put that into a noun? It is a gift. But we need to understand that the gift is intended by God to be a manifestation through you of God's grace. God is gracious. He's gracious to you, and he intends to be gracious to other people through you. Therefore, he enables you with, the, with specific 
abilities, its specific enablements to pour out God's grace on other people. That's what the gifts are. That's the nature of a spiritual gift. The gracious God wants to be gracious to his people, and he is ordained that his grace flow through the conduit of your life and my life. And so he equips each person a little differently to channel that grace, to channel that grace. There's so many different graces that God wants to pour out on his people. The grace of encouragement. Some of you are specifically engineered by God. You're wired by God to be encouragers. And the thought of, of rebuking someone, yeah, you just, you just can't get yourself to hardly even do that. And some of you are gifted in discernment and prophecy. And you don't have any problem rebuking people. Being merciful, that's a little bit of a struggle. Why? Because God has engineered you in a specific way to channel certain kinds of grace through your life. And this is what the gifts are about. Paul has set out to demolish the wrong idea about these gifts. And listen, beloved, a spiritual gift is simply this. It's a special demonstration of the grace of God through the life of the believer, and it's supposed to be working through each person in the church. Now, let me just add one more Greek word here for you to chew on. Um, and, I, and I don't normally throw this many out, but it's, it's significant here because actually there is a normal word for gift in the Greek, and Paul doesn't use it here. The normal word in Greek is dorea, but it's nowhere in this text. In, in the whole context of spiritual gifts, he never uses that word. In English, we insert the word gift because, by definition, as I said, grace assumes a gift, giving. And so the text actually says, now there are a variety of manifestations of God's grace. So just stick that truth in your back pocket for a little while because it's going to become important later as we consider these things further. But for now, let's just keep moving and we'll come back to that. Now, um, what do we need to know about spiritual gifts? First of all, spiritual gifts are not the test of spiritual men. Secondly, spiritual gifts are, are, they are manifestations of God's grace. Now third, every believer has one. Every believer has one. Notice verse seven. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good for the common good. Every believer has one, but to each one, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says this, as each one, and it's interesting here because it's so crucial for us as believers, as Paul has been explaining to us here and elsewhere in his other writings, that we need to see ourselves as part of the church and not as individuals. But there needs to be a very clear understanding of 
who you are and what your responsibility is as an individual, or you'll never be able to fulfill your purpose in the group, in the church. And so he talks about each one, each person. And so Peter says, as each one has received a special gift. And so you see, every member of the body of Christ has a special or unique gift. And that makes every one of us important to the health and effectiveness of this church. You can't say, because I can't preach, I don't have um, anything to contribute to this body. You can't say, because I'm not a gifted evangelist, I'm not a gifted musician, I can't sing, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gifted at teaching Sunday school, I'm not gifted at, you know, whatever, then I'm, I'm no use to the body. I'm, I'm not significant. I have nothing significant to do. You can't say that. You are significant to the body, every one of you, even you children. Notice this. Go down to verse 18. Verse 18, Paul says, Now, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Now, let me see your eyes for just a second. Every one of you who are here this morning, there are a number of you who haven't been here very long, and you may not be here very long. But can I just tell you a theological secret about that? You are here only in part because you chose to be here. The other reason that you're here, and the most important reason that you're here, is because God put you here. God put you here in this place for a purpose. And God maybe has had you here for 20 years. Maybe God has had you here for five years. Maybe God has had you here for one year. Doesn't matter. You may have only been here for a few weeks. Doesn't matter. God put you here for a purpose. And it's so important that you understand what that purpose is. And that's what he's teaching us here. You have been given, you have been wired, you have been engineered spiritually with a special ability to be a conduit of God's grace to other people, to be a giver on God's behalf to his people. God is the great giver. And Paul told the, uh, the Greeks, the philosophers in the Agropolis, God is not one who dwells in a temple made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our prayer. He receives nothing essential to his person or his happiness by what we give. Everything that we give, we have received from him. He is always, always, always the giver. And that's just another way of saying God is essentially gracious because that's what grace is. It is giving and so the God of the universe stands above us, as it were, pouring out grace upon grace, but he only does that for certain graces, not all graces, but he does it primarily through people, through you and through me. And so if you are at this church today, or if you're hearing my voice and you're at a different church today, then you just need to know God put you in that church for today, for the time that you were there, for the next year, for the next 10 years, for the next service, 
whatever it is, however long your stay is, God has you there for this purpose. He intends to use you as a means of delivering his grace to the people with whom you speak and whom you serve. That's why you're here. You know why there were conflicts and problems in the church of Corinth? Because they thought that the church existed for them. Why were the rich coming to the Lord's table with their own food, kind of getting there early before the poor, the slaves and the workmen got there and then ate all their food in their little clique and, and disassociated themselves from the poor? Because they thought that the church was about God serving them and meeting their needs. That the end of the conduit is a tank and that tank is me. God pours out whatever God's going to pour out, all of his blessings, all of his goods. He's the great butler in the sky, and his job is to serve me. And because of that, they came to church every week, thinking to themselves, what can I get out of this today? And who can I get it from? How can I get appreciation? I'm going to tell people the wonderful things that I did this week. How can I, how can I get my opinion across I'm going to write a nasty note. Or I'm going to tell someone how I really feel. It's about time they knew it anyway. Or, I don't know, fill in the blank. Why did you come today? Why did you come? Say, well, I came for encouragement. Well, encouragement's a good thing. But did you come for your own encouragement, or did you intend to be encouraged by encouraging other people? You see the difference? Why did you come today? Say, well, I, I intended to to give, give. Okay, why did you intend to give? Is it because you want to be a conduit of God's grace or is it just something you want to check off so that you feel good about yourself? The whole purpose of our coming together is that we might be individually used as conduits of God's grace according to how God has wired us to manifest and to dispense that grace on his behalf. Another way of saying it is, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ through the manifestations of the graces that he has bestowed upon us. And so Paul says in verse 18, now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And so think of your spiritual gift as a divine enablement. It is given to you by the Spirit of God with a sovereign design. The church is made up of many people. It functions like a physical body, and every person is a part of that body. And the spiritual gifts that we have are given by design to blend together and to enable the body to function properly. And we'll see Paul's illustration. This isn't the only place he does it. But as we get into this text, he talks about the body. One person's an eye, one person's a hand, one person's a foot. And we all have to work together. We've all been designed differently, but for the purpose of unity. So think about this for a minute. For every believer, if every believer has a gift, and every gift is important to the health and well-being of the body, then whenever a believer chooses not to use their gift, it hurts the church because everyone else has to compensate for the loss. Everybody else has to compensate for the loss. And it even gets worse than that. Sometimes it's not an inactive use of the gift. It's sometimes a proactive 
use of the deeds of the flesh, tearing into other people, harming other people with your words, your innuendo, your self-conceit. The problem is when one person in the body whom God has put here to accomplish dispensing his grace in that particular way fails to do his job, everybody else has to make up for it. When I was, uh, when I was associate pastor of the first church out of seminary up in Kansas um, that Chris and I were part of, uh, one of the neat things they had there was they had a handbell choir. You ever seen a handbell choir? A good one? We had a good one. Uh, if you got a bad one, then you probably have blocked it out of your mind because when it's, when it's bad, it's really bad. But if you got a good one, it's just an amazing thing to watch. It's an amazing thing to watch. And we had a, we had a big one. I mean, they were, they'd stretch almost all the way across this platform, maybe across the whole front, front here with their tables covered in black velvet, and they all wore white gloves, and they all had different kinds of bells, and they had those tuning forks with the hammers, and, and they had all kinds of things that were... Uh, were called bells. Uh, they made different tones. And they would play the most beautiful Christmas music and Easter music. And that's when we had them play. And I was the associate pastor there. And from time to time, I got to preach. And, um, and that's how I discovered my spiritual gift, by the way, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. But one night, I was trying to explain this truth about the spiritual gifts and how God has designed each person to have their part to play. And when one person fails to function the way God has designed them, that the whole pl- everybody else has to make up for it. And what I did was I had the bell choir come up, and they did one of their pieces, and it was majestic. It was wonderful. And when they got done, I said, okay, now I just want you to stay here, and here's what I want to do. Uh, I want you to play the piece again, only this time I'm going to stand behind you. I'm going to walk behind you. And when I tap you on the shoulder, what I want you to do is just quietly set your bells down, and I want you to take two steps backwards and just stand there with your hands kind of on your lap. And what was that going to do? Well, that's what I did. They started playing, and one by one I would go just kind of randomly here and then on the other side, and then one kind of toward the middle and then one on the other side middle, and I'd tap them on their shoulder, and they would take two steps back and hold their hands in front of them. And you know what the person next to them would do? they'd immediately start reaching for their bell and trying to read the notes and play an instrument that they weren't used to playing. And you know what? I was amazed at how good it sounded for a little while. As I tapped people on the shoulder, we finally got down to one woman. And, you know, I remember the last thing she did was she kind of dove across the table to grab this last bell. And, uh, and, and it didn't work. It didn't work. But when everyone is doing their part, it works, and it's beautiful. That's why it's called harmony. And that's what the local church is supposed to have. But it only happens when each person is doing what God has gifted them to do. There's a story about an early baseball player, back when baseball was new to this country. His name was Dizzy Dean, whose career ended because his toe got hit by a line drive. He was a pitcher. When he pitched, it came back at him and hit him in the toe. The injury ruined his throwing motion, uh, I read this week, because when he came off the rubber to pitch, he had to compensate by turning his foot the wrong way because of the pain. Consequently, he began overextending his arm, which eventually ruined his pitching arm. And the same thing is true spiritually in the church. When there are non-functioning members, 
there will be adverse effects somewhere else in the body. All the saints must be, all of the saints must be involved in ministering God's grace according to their gifts as he has given them. Now, let's review. Spiritual gifts are not the test of spiritual men. Secondly, spiritual gifts are manifestations of God's grace. Thirdly, every believer, if you're a child of God, you have one, even if you don't know it. And fourth, every gift in the body is unique. Now, I want you to notice Peter uses the term special gift in the text that we read a few minutes ago. And this indicates a singular gift, special gift. It indicates a singular gifting. And this is consistent with Paul's use of the term, the gift, when he's speaking or writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. And then again, in 2 Timothy 1, 6, he writes, For this reason, I remind you to, t- to kindle afresh, afresh the gift of God which is in you. Now, what do we make of that? I think John MacArthur gets this right when he says this. I believe this indicates that each believer receives one gift which is unique to him or her, but that gift may combine elements from all the categories of giftedness Each believer then is like a kind of spiritual snowflake. We are each uniquely equipped equipped to function in the body of Christ. We are each uniquely equipped to function in the body of Christ. We're each like a spiritual snowflake. I think some of us are more flaky than others, but (laughs) I was teaching this down in Haiti years ago uh, in Port-au-Prince. And I got to this point, and I said, and each of us are like a spiritual snowflake. And they all went, huh? You know, (laughs) nobody had ever seen snow before. Okay, so lesson learned. But that's what we're like. Everybody has got a gift. You might call it a gift mix, a secret recipe of how you are gifted as compared to other people who have similar giftings, but who are quite different in the manifestation of God's grace through those gifts. Now, this understanding allows for the obvious diversity among believers. For example, those of you who were here uh, back in the day when I was associate pastor, and uh, Pastor Jim Pittman was the senior pastor, um, and him and I were ministering together uh, for, for about six years, and uh, those of you who were here during that time know without a doubt that Jim and I were entirely different people. Uh, he was Lebanese. I'm, I don't know what I am. I'm kind of a mutt that's English, I don't know, New Jersey-ish, <laughs> I guess. In some respects, we were as different as night and day. Our interests were on opposite ends of the spectrum. He loved sports, especially tennis. I loved music and the arts. He never really was sure why in the world anybody needed art. Um, it's funny, when we were on vacation uh, Several months ago, we went to his church uh, just to see him, and uh, kind of, uh, we're still good friends. And he was taking us around, and this is classic Jim Pittman. Uh, the church had all this beautiful artwork, and most of the artwork were paintings and pictures, photographs, different shapes, different sizes, different views of their church building, because they had an, an absolutely beautiful church building there in North Carolina, overlooking the town that they were in. And so the church was just full and, and, uh, of these pictures of the, of the building. And he said, you know, 
These people worship this building. Look at all this art. Look at all these paintings of the building. And, uh, and he pointed over to one particular frame, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a picture of a church in it. And there was a scripture, and it said, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, what's the big deal about that? He said, the people don't know it, but I'm systematically taking down their artwork of the church and replacing it with framed portions of scripture. That's Jim's idea of art, right? Um, he saw everything, and I mean everything, is black and white. And frankly, I enjoyed a, a variety of shades of gray. I'm generally pretty quick to see another person's point of view. I enjoy being spontaneous. Kind of the running joke in the office when Jim was here is it took Jim 48 hours of planning to be spontaneous about anything. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was clear that God had gifted us to preach and teach his word. And those were our dominant gifts. His recipe, however, was quite different than mine. But when it came time to deliver, we could both stand in the pulpit and deliver God's truth. We both counseled God's word. It may be said that every preacher has a gift of prophecy, which is the ability to proclaim and explain God's word. But my prophetic gift is probably mixed with a little a little bit of service, a little bit of faith, a little bit of exhortation or encouragement, whereas Jim's was, was kind of a mix of discernment, administration, wisdom, a little bit of a hammer <laughs> or a brick put in there as well for the glory of God. <laughs> Frankly, uh, the Lord is the only one who knows what your secret recipe is for your gift mix. And I don't know all of mine. And you know what? It's not important that I do. Every Christian has been gifted. And all of our giftings are unique. And many of our giftings have striking similarities. A biblical example of this might be Paul's protege, Timothy. Clearly, Timothy was gifted to teach. Uh, that's why Paul told him to teach, preach, command, and exhort. He was also able to do the work of the evangelist, 2 Timothy 4, 5. So uh, perhaps, you know, part of his gifting was evangelism. And so we see that Timothy was gifted in the areas of evangelism, preaching, teaching, leadership. And it was all blended together as his own kind of unique spiritual gift mix. Now, was he a stronger teacher than an evangelist? Maybe. Maybe he was a great teacher, evangelist, preacher, and a horrible administrator. Maybe. I don't know. But we all tend to have this. That's why we struggle. When, when someone asks, what's your spiritual gift? And your first response is, huh? I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of, I mean, there was this time, there was this person. I don't know. I think it's kind of, and I've taken the tests, and I've filled out the little checklist and all that stuff, and I come away going, think. I don't know. Maybe. Why is that? I think it's far more complex than that. I think only God knows how he has gifted you. What your special gift recipe is. I believe every one of us has a unique spiritual gift, but I also believe that that gift that we have been given is actually a blend of various gifts from the Spirit 
One author writes this, like a painter who was able to create an infinite number of colors by mixing any combination of the ten or so colors that it carries on his palette, so the Spirit of God blends a little of one gift with a little of another gift to create the perfect combination within you. And as a result, you have a unique position in the body of Christ with an ability to minister as no one else in the body really can. Now, the exhortation here at the end is clear, is it not? Why'd you come this morning? What was your motivation? Was it to receive or was it to give? When I was on my way in this morning, just I guess a little before 6 a.m. this morning, headed in to meet with the elders, um, I turned off the radio about a quarter of the way here and began praying, and, and this is what I prayed. Lord, when I get there today, I'm kind of tired, and I'm kind of not feeling my best spiritually, and so I'm asking your help. When I get there, help me to be Christ-centered and other people-centered. Help me to show concern for them and not myself. Help me to suppress the things that I like about me and Lift up the things that I see in other people. Help me to be a channel of your grace today as I minister to your people. And you know what? There are an awful lot of times when I fail to do that. But we need to strive to do this. And here's what will happen as you do that. You come week after week to church. You come day after day into the lives of other believers. As you are saying to yourself and to the Lord, God, make me a channel of your grace. Here's what will happen. Somebody's going to say, hey, thanks for stepping in at the last minute and teaching Sunday school. And might I, might add, might I just add, you're really good at that. Have you thought that maybe God has gifted you in that way? No, never thought about that. You know, maybe we need to have you teach again. That's how you find out. Or maybe, you know, you're kind of fooling around with teaching and, and uh, people aren't responding. They're falling asleep. I mean, some of you are falling asleep. It doesn't matter who's preaching. Um, and, and people are kind of zoning out and your group is getting smaller and smaller. And can I just say something real delicately to you? You probably don't have the gift of teaching or preaching. And maybe one day, somebody's going to say, hey, can you just help us down here with the children? Can you help us with Awanas one day? We just really need help with this. And you say, well, okay. I mean, it's not my spiritual gift. It's obviously teaching. <laughs> no, maybe not. And you go down there, you start working with the children, and somebody says, wow, you're really good. You are such an encouraging person. You ever thought that your primary gift might be encouragement? You say, what do you mean? Well, you remember that letter you wrote to me? It came just exactly when I needed a word of encouragement. Maybe that's your gift. Or somebody comes along, one of the leaders of the church comes along and says, listen, we really need help. We've got this event, and we've got to have somebody administrate this. Have you ever done anything like that? No. Well, the Lord be with you, bless you, and keep you. But you're in charge. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you take it. And... And the people under you say, wow, you're really good at this. Maybe your primary gifting is 
at the top of your gift recipe, the first ingredient that God threw in was administration. And the way you're going to find out about it is just coming with the mindset, I'm coming to give, I'm coming to give, I'm coming to give. That's what grace is. And that's what the gift is about. So let's stop focusing on what my gift is, because the focus is on me, and rather focus on how can I serve God by serving his people today? And then let other people tell you what maybe your gift is. And be satisfied that you may never be able to pin it down. But God is pleased through your labor of grace. So what have we learned so far? Number one, spiritual gifts are not the test of spiritual men. Spiritual men are measured not by one spiritual gift, but by their submission to the lordship of Christ. Number two, spiritual gifts are manifestations of God's grace. Chiris. Number three, every genuine believer has a spiritual gift. And number four, every gift is especially designed by God to be unique and singularly important to the body of Christ. Now, what I hope you'll discover as we study the biblical teaching on spiritual gifts over the coming weeks is that God intends to use you to bless his church in ways that you cannot possibly imagine. And let me just promise you something. As you come with the mindset, I'm here to give. Whatever God has given me, I'm here to give it. I'm here to give it. I'm here to give it. What you're going to find, your experience is going to be joy. <laughs> joy. Why? Because as Jesus said, it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. As you come with the mindset of, what can I get? What can I get? What can I get? You leave here frustrated because you're never going to get what your flesh wants. But when you come and say, I want to give, I want to give, whatever I have, I want to give. Somebody has a financial need, I want to write a check right then. I want to hand them a load of cash. Whatever it is, I'll go sell something to meet the need, I'm going to give. Somebody looks like they're down, I'm going to ask them why. I'm going to see if I can pray with them. Somebody rejoices, I'm going to rejoice in their rejoicing without sharing anything else that happened to me this week. Whatever it is. And what you're going to get out of that is pure bliss. Pure joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit that comes, that we experience together in harmony as each member of the body is doing its part as each one does his part. That's the nature of spiritual gifts. That's what they are. You have one. Let's be effective at using them. Let's pray. Well, Father, we realize afresh this morning that we are unspeakably blessed when we faithfully use our spiritual gift to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to his church. And so I pray, Father, that you would teach us, instruct us, change us, change our mindset, change our goal when we come to church. May it be not about self-gratification, but rather putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves, meeting their needs, encouraging, building them up, the edification of your church. And Father, we know that this is your will for us, and so we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.